1: Hi, this is Doc Stull with New Books in Jazz. Today, we'll be talking to jazz critic and author Kevin Whitehead about his new book, Why Jazz? A Concise Guide, published by Oxford University Press 2011. In his introduction, Kevin writes... Jazz is a world of music in itself, encompassing the joyous dust ups of Dixieland and free jazz, the propulsion of Kansas City swing and breakneck virtuosity of bebop, the loud crunch of electric jazz, postmodern fragmentation, nobility, lust, humor, brains and feet, blues, country, rock and roll. It's all there. And Kevin does it in a highly readable, question-style, call-and-response format, including jazz history, profiles of the jazz legends, and a wonderful discography. Newcomers to jazz, aficionados, musicians, and jazz historians will surely make new and exciting musical connections. Hi, this is Doc Stull for New Books in Jazz, and I'm just delighted to have Kevin Whitehead uh, talking to me today about his new book, uh, Why Jazz. I really recommend it. I think it's the the kind of book. Doc, that breakup,
0: uh, that breakup thing just happened.
1: It did. Okay. I'm sorry. It's, okay. We were well, giving
0: the introduction, so I didn't really need to hear it. So I shouldn't have said anything. But uh, that,
1: that's that's okay. Let's uh, let's make sure we get it right. We'll we'll try again. All right, three, two, one. Hi, my name is Doc Stull for New Books in Jazz, and we're delighted to have author Kevin Whitehead with us today. His new book, Why Jazz, is a marvelous book uh, talking about the mysteries of Monk and Miles and Mingus, and uh, it's short, unbelievably short, and yet uh, has a wonderful discography, and it's in a wonderful format. So, Kevin, thanks so much for coming on the show with us.
0: I'm delighted to be here, and thanks for those kind words.
1: Oh, it's just, uh, just a lovely book. I, I just I can't wait to get into the discography as well. That You have so many wonderful examples in there, and the only thing I lament is that uh, I couldn't go through those, those examples before we got a chance to talk here. So uh, tell me a little bit uh, about yourself, uh, where you were born, uh, where you grew up, where you went to school, and how you got involved in jazz.
0: Okay, I was born in, uh, in New York City, in Greenpoint, in Brooklyn, in 1952. And I grew up in uh, New York suburbs, in Caldwell, New Jersey, and East Northport, Long Island. And um, I was like a kid who listened to rock and roll music, like everybody else who kind of grew up in the 60s. And I, you know, got a guitar when I was 15 and played and got an electric bass and played in bands. And um, went to college in upstate New York at uh, Oswego. Uh, state university system and jazz was just something that was kind of on the periphery for me at, at that point uh, John McLaughlin's Mahavishnu work yeah. you there yes I'm, uh, I'm here. sorry there was like a uh, call forwarding beep or something sorry um, so I saw the Mahavishnu Orchestra, McLaughlin and also uh, from going to see rock shows at the Fillmore East when I was in high school, uh, one night I went to see Neil Young in Crazy Horse, and the opening act was Miles Davis with one of the last appearances a Wayne Shorter ever made with his band. So I was gradually getting into my consciousness a little bit. And then when I got out of college, I took a job in a record store in Baltimore, and that's when my jazz education really began, because uh, record store clerks know a lot of things, and they know a lot about obscure records. And I had some people who worked with me who... Turned me on to a lot of good stuff, you know, starting with the real basics. Kevin, did you ever hear Oliver Nelson's Blues and the Abstract Truth? No. Let me put that on for you so you can hear it. You know, and it's like you just suddenly discover there's this whole uh, world of other music going on. At the same time, my taste in rock music was becoming more radical because I discovered Captain Beefheart. And and once you're into Captain Beefheart, everything else begins to sound tame and predictable. So I started looking around for some other music that had the same kind of impact, and I discovered uh, free improvised music. There was specifically the Music Improvisation Company album, one of the first albums on ECM, with Derek Bailey on guitar and Evan Parker on uh, soprano and tenor saxophones. So I sort of got pulled into jazz from the most extreme kind of improvised music also. Once I got into that stuff, I sort of became curious where it was coming from, and I started to sort of slowly go backwards through jazz history until I got to... You know the early New Orleans stuff, and then started working my way forward again. So it was a nice, uh, a nice kind of experience. Well, that, and then no. I did yeah, go uh, ahead. two sorry. years of, uh two years of graduate school. I got a, a master's at the Syracuse in American literature and culture. And part of my coursework there was a, a jazz history course. Um, it was a very good course, but by the time I got to the 1970s, I started to feel like I knew as much about the topic as the professor did. So I began to think that maybe writing about music was a possibility for me because I already I already knew I could write, but I was sort of in search of a subject. I discovered I was not much of a fiction writer. And so um, I started writing about jazz. You know? So that was all, uh, I guess, when I was about 27, something like that, but I really got into it. A little bit of a late bloomer as far as that goes.
1: Now, your book, Why Jazz? As I mentioned before, it's it's short. I, I, I have jazz uh, histories that are 500, 600 pages long, and your book is short, and it's in a wonderful format, too. Can you tell me a little bit about why you wrote the book, Why Jazz, and the format that you put it into?
0: The, uh, I was actually approached by an editor at Oxford uh, University Press about doing this book, and originally it was envisioned as part of a series, uh everything you need to know about blank the first book was about islam. It came out um i think about two thousand two or three and it was a good seller, so they decided to expand the series and the format of that, those books was it 's a in question and answer format very concise um, and uh as the person put it to me in the initial phone call, not for dummies so that you could uh you know try to be to have some real substance there, but try to do it as concisely as possible. And since I've been doing these pieces for National Public Radio from from 1987 for the show, Fresh Air, I was already used to kind of uh, condensing my thoughts down into as as short a form as was practical without, you know, making things too uh, simplistic. So I felt like that was kind of a a good match for me. And after the book was written and submitted, they realized it didn't really fit in with the subject matter of the other books in the series, so they decided to cut it loose. But... um, that's uh, where the the format came from.
1: Yeah, well, I think it it, it really works. Uh, it's conversational and it's uh, it's really lovely the way it's it's laid out. Um, let me go back to something you mentioned because it's a question I had from your book. When you mentioned Islam, I know you were talking about this this other publisher that uh, was producing books in, in question format. But one of was it was, it was, you,
0: it, was a, it was the same publisher. It was Oxford. It was just that the book didn't come out as part of that uh, part of that series. Okay, I should um, make the, it clear. Sorry.
1: Okay. Well, the question I had was, uh, you, there's one paragraph where you talk about the Crusades and how uh, the contact with uh, with the Arabs, um, that that was an influence on European music in terms of their drum signals. I thought that was really interesting.
0: This is a little tidbit I got from um, Cuba and its music by, and I'm blanking on his name right now, so I'm looking at the book on the shelf, Ned Sublet. Uh, about um, African drummers who were heard in Spain on a battlefield in one of those periodic skirmishes after the Muslim in, uh, invasion of Spain, uh, sometime around the year 1086, I think it was. And that um, some of the North African troops included these uh, sub Saharan, basically slaves, Af- enslaved peoples, uh, who were drummers who had these sort of drum codes because it's chaos on the battlefield and uh, visual signals don't necessarily work. So musical signals are sort of a way of uh, uh, c- kind of communicating over distance, and this sort of plays into what we also know about other kinds of uh, uh, musical codes in um, uh, in drumming from West Africa. So this was sort of like a, a first inkling of this for European troops. And then subsequently uh, in the Crusades, uh, they found um, when they were doing battle against um, Islamic troops in the East. that similar systems are being used there. I think that's how the, this whole kind of signal corps thing kind of works its way into the European military, and gradually out of those signal corps you get military bands that are developed out of the same concepts with um, uh, drums and then uh, uh, trumpets, bugles, brass instruments, which the Europeans started using for signals also. And out of those military bands, you get uh, 19th century concert bands like John Philip Sousa's, and those bands are part of the influence on uh, the early jazz groups. So it's one of those beautiful things where everything seems to be connected, if you trace it far enough back.
1: Yeah, it was. Uh, I got chills reading it. I thought, wow, we're connected farther back than I ever realized in, in terms of uh, the music connections there. Uh, another thing you wrote, Kevin, is that jazz is full of illusions. I wondered if you could uh, talk about that a little bit.
0: Um, Well, because it's a reinvention of of material, for one thing. And it's like how, even uh, before jazz got started, this process of of ragging in uh, in, uh, folk music and in plantation culture in the late 19th century, that you would have this idea that you take a tune like Turkey in the Straw or whatever, and then you would sort of syncopate its rhythms and paraphrase its melody and make this kind of looser version of it. And then classic ragtime piano music, like Scott Joplin's, is sort of an attempt to use that same kind of rhythmic energy in a a composed music context. So every time you're playing your own version of Turkey in the Straw, or whatever, you're sort of alluding to um, the melody that everybody has in their mind, even as they're aware of how you're changing it up. And this, uh, in jazz history, in terms of the basic repertoire, you have certain tunes that carry a history with them. You know, like uh, when... uh, Musicians play all the things you are. They often include the introduction that Didi Gillespie added to that tune in uh, in the mid-1940s. Or when somebody plays certain ballads with a harmon mute, you understand that Miles Davis is one of the references for that whole kind of uh, uh, style that they're doing. And also, uh, uh, one of the things that really fascinates me is the the whole idea of musical quotation, how you um, quote from one piece of music in the course of another one. Uh, Duke Ellington's Black and Tan Fantasy is uh, an example often cited by me and many others, uh, ending with a quotation from the Chopin Funeral March as a way of kind of um, allowing jazz to kind of call out to other kinds of music and also to sort of drag in the associations because when people hear that little bit of Chopin dum, dum, ba, dum, ba, da, 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 they know that's funeral music. So it, it brings a whole other range of associations to it the way those old bugle calls did. You know?
1: And that's that's... Part of the fun, of course. The more educated you get, the more you can pick those out, and you you get that thrill of of, of recognition there, and it, it it ties that tapestry back. It's
0: yeah, uh, that's it's one of, that's actually fantastic. one of the
1: issue,
0: issues I try to uh, tackle kind of early in the book. This whole idea of why do I really need to know anything about the history of the music to understand it? We well, you, you, maybe you don't need to, but it will enrich your understanding if you uh, if you realize that. All these things are kind of referring, uh, one piece referring back to another or to certain kind of tendencies in the music.
1: I had another question, uh, a name that came up that I wasn't aware of, but in the past two interviews I became aware of, Willis Conover. What's his uh, significance in terms of the history of jazz? Uh,
0: Willis Conover, was. Uh, he was the guy who ran... Um, what was the name of the show for, for Voice of America? He was a, a jazz disc jockey whose uh, programs were broadcast, in particular, uh, behind the Iron Curtain during the Cold War. And so he was sort of like a, a conduit of good music for people all over the world. He, I think, became for a lot of jazz fans in in Europe and in Asia. He had one of the most recognizable names of any American because he sort of was a broadcaster who played good music and tried to put the music in, in context, so he could kind of educate listeners in uh, in what was going on. So he was, he was a, a, a really big deal. I think Americans don't know him nearly as much as uh, the older jazz fans, older jazz musicians uh, uh, in, in Europe and Asia.
1: But very important in in bringing jazz behind the Iron Curtain during the Cold War days.
0: Yeah, there was already, I mean, jazz had gotten around very, very quickly in the 1920s. I mean, there has been some good uh, research done on this. uh, The Canadian historian Mark Miller has a particularly good book on the subject, whose name I have to look up because it just flew out of my head as things sometimes do. Some hustling this. Taking Jazz to the World, 1914 to 1929. That's a, a book that has a lot of good information. And I lived in Holland for a while in 1990, so also I came across some good research there about um, uh, the Dutch musicians playing in Indonesia with Indonesian musicians. By the middle of the 1920s, you also had like at the Frankfurt Conservatory there was sort of like a jazz education class by about 1926. You had Sam Wooding's band playing in Russia in the 1920s, and musicians really got around. Um, Buck Clayton played in Shanghai for a while, the trumpet player in the 1930s, and when he got there he found out the chefs already knew how to cook soul food because Velita Snow had already been there and it taught people uh, how to do that stuff. Velita Snow, a singer and a trumpet player. So it's really amazing the kind of progress that the music made uh, so early on
1: and and a lot of this scholarship is just coming out i mean things that, that ordinarily we 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 didn't know uh just the fact that jazz players were playing in in uh in eastern europe and in the soviet union and in china uh in the in the 20s and 30s
0: it it's it, it's odd that as we get further away from the earliest years of the music we actually know more about it now than we did uh 30 or 40 years ago the research on the early years of jazz in particular has been uh, really impressive. I'm thinking books like uh, Lawrence Gushy's uh, Pioneers of Jazz, about the original Creole band that was uh, on the vaudeville circuit in the mid-19 uh, teens. And uh, Thomas Brothers' book, uh, uh, Louis Armstrong's New Orleans, that I'm reading now, also has uh, lots and lots of fascinating information about that period.
1: Uh, Another name that came up in your book, of course, you you go over Miles and Monk and and Mingus and Ornette Coleman and and a host of other names, Louis Armstrong, of course. But Mary Lou Williams, uh, why was she so important in the world of jazz?
0: Mary Lou Williams, um, one of the reasons that makes her really important is that she was involved in it early and continued to sort of update her concept uh, over the years. I mean, she made her first recordings in, I think it was 1926 as part of a vaudeville band then uh... her husband at the time got a job in kansas city with andy kirk's band and they moved out there and before long mary lou williams was sort of their uh... um, de facto second pianist i think andy kirk had to overcome a certain amount of skepticism on his own part about a woman being on the road with a band Although my understanding was that she was already traveling with them a fair amount at that time and she was an excellent piano player and a very good arranger and uh... When she came to New York in the 1940s, she sort of encouraged a lot of uh, uh, younger musicians, including Thelonious Monk, who kind of lifted the beginning of his tune, uh, Rhythm and Ning, I think it is, from uh, Walking and Walkin and Swinging, an Andy Kirk chart, where there's one phrase and it, which is one that Monk made good use of later. And also, uh, uh, she was the first to record music by uh, Herbie Nichols, uh, jazz composer and pianist of the 1950s, who's a particular favorite of mine, and of a few other people I know. And uh, later, she would do these concerts where she would present the entire history of jazz played from the piano, up until the very modern period. And Cecil Taylor, the avant-garde jazz pianist, was... uh, a great fan of Mary Lou Williams came out and expressed his support. She said to him once, we should do a concert together, which was a total disaster, <laughs> and which was recorded so uh, you can hear it. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. Because it's, it's like uh, the two concepts don't really gel. It's like listening to two records playing at the same time a little bit, which can be lovely, but it's uh, kind of chaotic and was a bit of a disappointment to Mary Lou Williams. She also did a lot of uh, religious music, um, I kind of jazzed for the church, if you will, in the uh, late 50s and early 60s. A really, really varied, uh, really, really interesting career, and a fantastic piano player also.
1: One of the things I noticed, I mentioned the name Ornette Coleman, and that seemed to come up a lot in your book, and maybe because of the the background you had that you talked about earlier in the interview. Or, in the interview what was his significance in jazz?
0: I think uh, Ornette's... Um, the thing was about kind of loosening up the relationship between, uh, improvisation and a fixed chord scheme. You know, if you have, uh, the blues, to take a basic example here, you have, uh, three chords that move in kind of a predictable way. And Warnett's idea was, what if in the course of being moved to improvise on a material, you want to depart from that scheme? Then in his case, you shouldn't have to play through it every chorus the same way with all the chord changes arriving at the same place and every chorus being 12 or 16 bars long. If he has a thought that takes him 13 and a half bars to play, then he should be able to play it, and members of the band should be able to uh, be attentive enough and to adjust their own parts so that everybody kind of stays together. So it was uh, a different kind of way of manipulating material, but it also, as so many of the avant-garde things uh, do, had its roots in uh much earlier music because the blues early on was not necessarily a 12 bar three chord form it could be eight bars somebody might do 10 bars it might be uh some of the field hollers just a kind of a flexible form that expands or contracts according to whatever it is a person wants to uh to say i mean there was a uh, um particular singer in uh texas called Texas Alexander he didn't play the guitar but he carried one with him in case he ran into a guitar player and he um, he would do these choruses where he might, you know, instead of singing a four-bar phrase, it might be five-and-a-half bars or whatever. And This posed particular challenges for the kind of guitar players like Lonnie Johnson who accompanied him on record. It's kind of similar to the the challenge that Ornette posed to the musicians who played with him around 1960. I mean, me one, of things, one of the things I find really fascinating about Jay is all those kind of, if you keep looking back through the early period, you find the roots for all sorts of things that that come later on. And I guess that's one of the reasons that I've always had uh a really liberal interpretation of what jazz is. Some people favor a really narrow definition. Mine tends to be rather broad. Because I'm mindful of these many, many precedents uh that feed into the diversity of uh of music now. My goodness, that was a long answer. I'll try to make the next one a p- little bit shorter so no, that
1: no, I, I love it, and, and uh, I think that's one of the things that your, your readers will love about your book is that discography in the back where you really took pains to go back and, and show those older pieces and, and how we're still drawing from, from those older pieces. And in many cases, people we didn't think were innovators uh, were innovators and that uh, new players are, uh, are, are taking things from them.
0: You know a lot of a lot of the content in Y stems from uh, a two semester jazz history course that I taught four years running at the University of Kansas starting in uh, two thousand and four and I have to give uh, credit to the various chairs of the American Studies Department who allowed me to do that at Kansas and um, for every class, basically, I'd be uh, looking through. The the history define the pieces of music that really kind of uh, encapsulate the kind of points that I, that I saw were really important. So a lot of those obscure pieces of music are a result of the kind of hunting that I did in putting those classes together uh, at Kansas. And also I think, I think a lot of the general um, uh, thrust of the argument uh, or whatever you want to call it of the narrative uh, sort of comes from uh, from those classes also. Although white jazz is much shorter than. Uh, the content of a two-semester jazz history course.
1: Why the name,
0: why jazz? Well, um, I thought since it was a a book with questions and answers, it should be a a question. And I thought because the book was short, the name should be short. But I think think that it was Suzanne Ryan, my editor at Oxford, who came up with the title. I don't actually remember. It's possible I did. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, my previous book was called New Dutch Swing, so I thought it was nice that, that the two books' the titles, you know, add up to five words. That seemed like uh, setting a good precedent. So Those are a little bit whimsical, you know. Why jazz? Jazz? Why bother? You know, I mean, was a little bit uh, silly as far as that goes, I guess.
1: So, Kevin, if you're sitting next to somebody in a bar, or on a train, or on the bus, or whatever and they don't know who you are, and you strike up a conversation, and they find out that you're a jazz critic, and they know nothing about jazz, and they ask you, well, what is jazz, Kevin? What do you what tell
0: is, them? Yeah, it's um African-American uh, improvised music is uh maybe the shortest version. Music where people do a lot of improvising. Um, you know, I... Try to avoid those conversations. Well, no, let me, let me put that in a different way. Uh, people, when when I meet people, they usually don't ask a question, what is jazz, because usually people have some idea in their head of, of what it's about. In fact, what more often happens is people become vaguely apologetic. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't listen to jazz, and I you know want to make it clear to them that I don't judge people's worth uh, according to how much they're into jazz music. I'm more interested in just kind of bringing bringing people to it if they think there there might be something in there that they would respond to. The question people usually ask is, "What's your favorite jazz record?" And that's a question that I dearly hate because it kind of changes from from day to day anyway. And I I try to resist that kind of the uh, hierarchy in the arts. You know, who's who's the best musician? Who's the the best painter? you know, what's the best painting from Europe? I mean, it's, it's sort of like that kind of question for me. It's just too too impossibly broad to answer sensibly.
1: And everybody has their own ideas. Talk about the jazz wars a, a little bit. It uh, kind of reminds me of religious wars.
0: There there are this uh, these uh, sectarian battles that break out in jazz uh, uh, every once in a while, and it can be a little bit like, um, what's the business in Gulliver's Travels? The uh, The big war between people who... The big Indians and the little Indians, the people who crack open a hard-boiled egg from the narrow end or from the wide end, and they have to have a huge uh, dispute about who's correct. Uh, In the 1940s, there was one of these battles. It was, uh, on the one hand, you had uh, swing music, which some people thought had become too regimented, uh, big band music, uh, like uh, Benny Goodman's, say. You had some of the musicians who came out of Chicago in the 1920s who played in a more loosely improvisational style that was more modeled on the early New Orleans players like Louis Armstrong, who thought that swing music had kind of lost its way. that had become this sort of almost militarized sort of music. And then also the the new music of bebop was coming up in the 1940s, and this was thought to be too abstract, and you couldn't whistle it, and you couldn't dance to it. So there was also some feeling that 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 music was cut off from the kind of populist roots that jazz had. So you had these sort of battles at that time between the progressives, the beboppers, and the so-called multi-fakes, the people who still like the old uh, New Orleans-style improvisation. Some of this was kind of theater, some of it was just publicity. Sometimes they'd have concerts of like, you know, Dixieland versus modern kind of a thing, and it was just a way of kind of uh, increasing some interest for the music. Okay, flash forward about 40 years. Um, 1960s, 1970s, you have seen a lot of activity in kind of the jazz avant-garde and kind of uh, uh, freeing up new musical practices and different kinds of ensemble interaction. Um, A lot of it coming out of the uh, musicians from Chicago associated with the uh, Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians. People like Anthony Braxton and Muhal Richard Abrams and the Art Ensemble of Chicago and then in the early 1980s, uh, uh, Wynton Marcellus comes along, this dynamic, excellent trumpet player, uh, very articulate, who basically rejects everything that's been happening for the last 20 years or 15 years and would like to go back to jazz the way it was the minute before Miles Davis got an electric piano. So you can really hear on, on the first record that Wynton Marcellus makes under his own name that he's, he's really trying to emulate the Miles Davis uh, uh, quintet of the middle 60s they don't get it exactly right because anachronisms always creep in and that's not a bad thing. I think those anachronisms are part of the way that the music kind of goes forward. You know, nobody can ever really accurately replicate uh, the music that somebody else made 30 years ago because there's all that other music you've heard that they didn't that works its way into your music in some kind of way. So anyway, in the 80s, so then you had this sort of, uh, war between the progressives and the so-called uh, young lions, the musicians who favored a more kind of uh, uh, bebop-styled attitude. And uh, as always happens, I think, in these things, is the conservatives basically always lose these battles because you can't really, you can't turn back the clock. So eventually, and if you look at jazz now, we are not uh, dealing with a narrow definition of jazz at this point. I, think I said this in, a, in one of the pieces I did for for fresh air recently that i think we may be headed toward another one of those periods of intense debates about what exactly jazz is because things are getting so much looser now you have musicians who are introducing all sorts of aspects of uh... of uh... rock music and even uh, country music uh... hip-hop Um seventies pop in the case of uh... uh esperanza Spaulding. Um I think that uh... That's actually a good thing for the music, you know I think jazz is is very good at absorbing influences from from all over the place. I mean, I think improvised music generally is very good for appropriating any sound it hears that it likes. It can figure out a way to uh to work it in. I think one example I use in the book is uh a musician might hear somebody whistling a tune they heard on the radio. he could be on the bandstand playing that tune back twenty minutes later you know you can you can have things. Uh, kind of incorporated into music that quickly. Quite amazing, really, to think about
1: it. It's quite amazing. You you mention in your book, uh, you speak a little bit about the relationship of, of jazz to hip-hop. Do you want to address that real quickly?
0: Yeah, there's. I think there's uh, a certain kind of rhythms that come out of hip-hop, uh, sort of entered into jazz. Um, you can hear it in certain drummers. Uh, I remember being at a, at a show at the the Jazz Showcase in Chicago, where um, the Master of Ceremonies will always get up and, and give a speech, It always includes some knocks against hip-hop and rock music, and things like this, Joe Siegel, the impresario. And I remember there was one night where uh, Gene Jackson was the drummer. I don't remember whose band it was with, but he had just been playing some hip-hop rhythms about five minutes earlier, except Joe didn't recognize that that's what he had been listening to. I mean, I think these things kind of creep in a lot if you listen to i think uh uh Greg Osby, the alpha saxophonist, there's a lot of the kind of uh way he places his rhythms in a solo line that has a lot to do with the kind of uh a syncopated uh rhythms you hear in uh, rap vocals. You also have uh Jason Moran doing a sort of a a prepared piano version of Planet Rock the early 80s uh, New York uh, uh, rap classic. I mean, it's, uh, it's not surprising that musicians who have grown up since 1980 have some feel of hip-hop in the music because that's part of what they grew up with. And I think jazz musicians are always responding in some way to the music they grew up with, even if it's not on a, on a conscious level.
1: You mentioned a, a couple of cities in your book, New York, of course, and, and New Orleans, of course, but Chicago comes up a lot. Uh, let's go back in time again. What was the Austin High crowd that you talked about in your book?
0: The Austin, Austin High was a, uh, uh, still is, a uh, high school in the Chicago suburbs to the west, I think. Now it's inside the city limits. I'm not sure it was then. And uh, a few of the, uh, musicians who came out of there, particularly uh, Bud Freeman, tenor saxophonist, and Jimmy McPartland, a cornet player who later married uh, Mary McPartland, uh, were these these kind of high school kids who got together almost like uh, garage band musicians you know, to kind of play improvised stuff. And they would, I guess, ride their bicycles eight miles downtown at night to hear King Oliver's band play at the Lincoln Gardens. Bud Freeman said later that the Doorman there would greet them saying, I see y'all are here for your music lessons tonight. And they would kind of hang out by the bandstand and sort of try to pick up what they could about the new music. And then they started recording themselves about 1927 and became a big part of this, this kind of a, a Dixie movement that I mentioned uh, of the early 1940s. Bud, Bud Freeman worked a lot with uh, Eddie Condon guitar player from the Chicago suburbs who was very good at organizing these sort of sessions in the 1930s and 40s, and had his own club in New York, several of them actually, that he was based at, uh, where he would sort of promote this kind of uh, traditional style of music. Although it didn't really sound like music in the 1920s anymore, the rhythm was much more loose, because again, there are all these other rhythmic developments that had happened in the meantime that had crept their way into the music, consciously or unconsciously. I don't think anybody in the 40s was really interested in sounding like 1925 anymore. They just liked to have the spirit of that music.
1: Another guy you mention in, in your book that um, you hear a lot about uh, is Artie Shaw. Uh, why was he such a unique guy?
0: I think Artie Shaw, uh, I mentioned him because I, the swing era is a part of jazz that has been covered a lot, you know, so I was looking for a way to kind of deal with it sort of efficiently in the book, so I decided to tell it basically through the story of uh Benny Goodman and Artie Shaw, these two clarinet players who were sort of leading big band leaders of the of the late nineteen thirties. But one of the things that's really interesting me about Shaw was that he was he was never happy with what he had. He uh if he had a hit, this made him grumpy because then people wanted to hear it and then he had to play it every night and then he got sick of it and then it was like, Why don't we even bother having hits? Uh, he was a guy who thought publicity was silly and people should leave him alone, but married three Hollywood stars. I mean, if you want to shun publicity, marrying Lana Turner and then Ava Gardner, maybe those are mistakes, you know, that kind of thing. And he was constantly kind of breaking up his bands and looking for a new concept and putting a new one together. He was often looking for ways to uh, combine a string section. With uh, a jazz orchestra, which I think he did rather well at certain times in the early 1940s. He's an excellent clarinet player. And um, he had also, uh, like many of the uh, big band leaders, had these these uh, small groups uh, that might share the bandstand with the big band as kind of a, a little bit of a break. And he had a particularly interesting one, the Gramercy Five, with uh, a harpsichord in place of piano. A uh, really lovely and distinctive sound. I don't know. there's had another? Yeah, sure. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Kevin. I was just going to say there's a there's a, a lot more to say about Artie Shaw, but uh, I didn't, you know, it's it, 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 in response to these questions, Just sometimes I feel that I'm not, uh, I, I want to feel like I'm sliding some aspect of somebody's career, you know
1: well you 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 covered a lot of different names uh in uh in in very few pages anthony braxton what uh why was he significant
0: braxton is a a really important figure partly because he became a lightning rod during those uh the jazz wars of the 1980s i mean I, in the 1970s braxton was like one of the great heroes of jazz you know he had these very expansive projects He did these things that sounded almost like a a John Philip Sousa's band uh, uh, losing control of itself and kind of running away down a hill. He also made these uh, really beautiful, really intricate kind of uh, quartet and uh, quintet recordings. He did a lot of stuff with unusual instrumentation that might not have a traditional rhythm section. He also wrote uh, uh, very ambitious composed music, including a piece for four orchestras that he convinced his label of the 70s, Arista Records, to record at the time. And in the in the 80s, uh, Braxton became sort of a, uh, a focus of criticism for people aligned with Wint Marcellus, let's say, who felt this is exactly what we're talking about: people who aren't really jazz musicians and should not be considered jazz musicians. Look at Anthony Braxton; he doesn't even really swing that much, and some of them didn't think he swung at all. You know, and I, my argument is that swinging is great, but the conceptualists are also very important. You know, there were people in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, who thought that Jelly Roll Morton couldn't swing. I know some people who give me a big argument about that. Uh, The piano player Ethan Iverson, from the Bad Plus, he kind of uh, said, how can you say that Jelly Roll doesn't swing? He's one of the hardest swingers. But some people thought that he didn't, Uh, yet we still recognize that uh, Jelly Roll Morton made some amazing contributions to jazz in the the 1920s and 30s. So I think Braxton is like a, a... a really uh, ambitious thinker, had a very distinctive kind of saxophone style. They drew a bit on some things that Eric Dolphy had been doing in the early 1960s. Some very kind of angular melody lines. And he also had an idea that that uh, you could have a lot of things going on simultaneously in the music, and people could still kind of uh, sort it out for themselves. A little bit like the Charles Ives principle that you could have, you know, two brass bands playing at once. Well, that can be fun to listen to if you can straighten them out in your head. And Braxton's idea was that we are increasingly living in a complicated world where we're bombarded with input. If you can follow four different musical lines from a quartet at the same time, that will teach you something about how to survive in the modern world. So it's just a way of, of kind of uh, uh, updating jazz to reflect the environment that it comes from, I guess. Yes, yeah, very
1: interesting. I, I'm really jumping around here because I have so many questions, uh, Kevin. What was just, unique just about... This jumping is Can- fine, that's fine. <laughs> what was unique about Kansas City? What what was unique about that Basie t- uh, band, and, and what was it about Kansas City?
0: Kansas City, it was sort of um, the capital of a region where a lot of people did a lot of uh, touring. You know, the, the so-called territory bands. Of the 20s and 30s were often uh, based out of Kansas City. The Blue Devils were based in Oklahoma City, but uh, Benny Moten's band and various others that eventually became the, the Count Basie Band um, was one of the ones from Kansas City. Part of it was uh... that there was this kind of blues tradition that comes from the, the middle of the country. Uh, there was also a few other things that were kind of mixed in. I mean, Arthur Pryor, who was one of the great trombone players from the, the Sousa Band. Uh, was based in Kansas City for a while. Um, Sedalia, Missouri, the where Scott Chaplin was from, is not so very far away. I guess it's a couple hours away now. Not sure what it was then. And you had, because you had a lot of these bands who were sort of traveling a lot in the Southwest, there was a lot of competition. When, say, the Blue Devils from Oklahoma City ran into Benny Moton's band in some little town and they're both on tour, there might very well be a kind of battle of the bands to see who could beat who, and Benny Moten's record was quite good until they ran into the Blue Devils, and then they kind of got tramped a little bit, and then Benny Moten sort of started hiring one-by-one one musicians away from the Blue Devils until the two bands had basically been combined. Uh, Basie had come from back east. He's actually from New Jersey, and he had learned a lot about playing strike piano and about playing jazz organ from Fats uh, Walla, who kind of took him under his wing Waller was playing organ at a movie house in Harlem, and he noticed that Basie was frequently down in the front row kind of checking him out. So, kid, come here. Show me what you can do, and I'll be back in ten minutes. And then Fats would go out and get a beer for himself, and then he'd come back and show uh, Basie certain things. So uh, I think in Kansas City, the really important thing there was that uh, the Kansas City bands in the early 30s swung harder than the bands back east. And when the Count Basie band gets to New York around 1936, uh all the New York bands suddenly, there's like a little more spring in their step because they have this example of uh, these musicians from out west, this kind of lighter, more floating beat that was really uh irresistible to anyone who heard it. So, it's, I mean, it's really interesting that you have these very distinct regionalisms that developed in jazz early on. And now that effect is really muted quite a bit because when somebody plays something in one place, everybody elsewhere hears it immediately, you know. So we have more of a a global community in a way than a series of uh, isolated regional scenes.
1: One of the things at the end of your book, Why Jazz, is where is is jazz going? And uh, I think that's a very short answer to that question. You don't know. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, nobody, nobody knows, you know, nobody I mean, knows. um, yeah. I, I remember reading other, other books, magazine articles, things like that, where people would assert confidently where the music is going and their arguments seem very reasonable, except the music didn't turn out the way they said, because usually somebody unexpected comes along who changes things up or there's something new that happens in popular music that has an effect on jazz. We just don't really know. Uh, even as I'm saying this, I'm tempted to do this sort of thing, but I think I'll resist uh, making my own predictions. With I mean, the- it, 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 what, what has happened already is fascinating enough for me. You know, I'd rather talk about what exists than uh, pretending I know what's going to happen.
1: What about your own evolution? That, that word has been in the news recently, but um, what about-, about your own evolution just in terms of your... Your listening tastes and or your appreciation of of certain artists. Uh, how has that changed? Is there an artist that you for example, didn't understand or didn't appreciate, and through time you've you've grown to 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 see them as more complex and compelling than you did before. And, and what do you listen to now?
0: Uh, you know, I've, I've always listened to a wide variety of jazz since I really since those early years when I got into it. I was always interested in things that were happening in early jazz and certain bebop musicians. And um, because I was one of those people who defended uh, the so-called avant garde. I think a lot of people thought that was the only kind of music I was interested in. But I've always you know, been like a nut for listening to Coleman Hawkins and uh, Duke Ellington, you know, to name two. People, I think what happens is there are certain people you don't pay so much attention to, and then when you go back and listen to them again later, you think, you know, uh, there's some nice stuff there. Uh, Whit Marsalis is probably a good example for me, someone who uh, he and I have had our differences and when i was working on uh y jazz i went back and listened to a bunch of recordings of his from the 90s that either i had not heard or hadn't really paid so much attention to at the time and there's some very very good records in there uptown ruler very nice record and um a few of the pieces that he wrote for uh, uh for big band also i think are are, are quite nice uh who else? For some reason, Brad Melbell was one of those people I just hadn't really paid so very much attention to him and listened to a bunch of his stuff when I was working on the book. And I was, yeah, why? You know, you 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 are puzzled sometimes that you haven't been paying more attention to uh, somebody or other. I also recognize that everybody has their blind spots. You know, there's a few musicians who are greatly revered by people I respect whose um, music doesn't do so very much for me. And I think that's probably more about me than it is about them. You
1: know, yeah. Well, you do an admirable not everybody job. Like just, everything. Yeah, I think you do a, a great job in in just uh, speaking about as many diverse musicians as you can, and really you know, telling, explaining why they are unique. Uh, and I know you probably get this question a lot, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Uh, if somebody is just beginning to appreciate jazz are there a couple of, of songs or are there a couple of uh, collections or specific names that say, this is a must. If if you want to get it, you, you need to start here.
0: Well, I'm tend to say Kind of Blue because everybody else does. you know. But I think at this point, maybe everybody's heard uh, Kind of Blue a lot. Uh, what are records I recommend to people? Let's see, uh, Coltrane plays the blues, because I think for a Col- John Coltrane record, it's... It's sort of on the cusp of his uh, quote-unquote avant-garde period, but you can still hear uh, the traditional stuff going in, and the blues is really basic material, so everybody can kind of hear what's uh, what's going on in that setting. Um, Polonius Monk plays Duke Ellington. I mean, that was a record that was explicitly made to make Monk's music more intelligible by letting people hear him play on pieces that were familiar to them, like uh, It Don't Mean a Thing If It Ain't Got That Swing. Uh, one I mentioned earlier, Oliver Nelson's Blues and the Abstract Truth from 1961, I think it is. Just one of the one of the kind of perfect jazz records. Uh, it's got one
1: of the great names, too. Yes. The Blues also. and the Abstract Truth is yes. just it's, such a compelling No wonder he did a
0: more Blues and the Abstract Truth. It wasn't quite the same, but, you know, you just can't resist in that case.
1: Any others? And I realize you... all of those
0: records are, are clustered around 1960, and that's kind of a long time ago, but... Uh, those are ones I, I kinda point to. I agree. Yeah. I think one of the one of the things I tried not to do in a way in the book was to try to work in everybody I thought was really good. Because I think it was just you the reader would get overwhelmed with uh too many names, you know, so I kinda tried to pick out people who sort of uh epitomized a movement, you know, or, or and then just try to tell the story through the music of uh, uh, a few of those people. I mean, I, I wanted to, I've said this before, but I'll say it again, I wanted to make a book that would be both something that would be uh, informative for, for novices, people who didn't really know anything about the music, but also I wanted to have enough uh, 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 interesting side discussions and things for people who did know about jazz music already who would say that's, you know, they would learn some things that they didn't know either. So the the musical selections I talk about in the book, they tend to be some of them are pieces that are very well known that get discussed a lot, like Ellington's Black and Tan Fantasy or Coleman Hawkins' Body and Soul, and some other pieces of music that don't get uh, that don't get mentioned so much. One of the musicians I dig a lot of my way to mention in the chapter on the the, the 80s and the 90s is the clarinet player John Carter from Los Angeles, who I feel is a really important composer who has never quite gotten his due, partly because a lot of his key records have been out of print for a while, but he's Something I really feel passionately about and I'm hoping that uh you know the the wheel will turn again and he will come around for more of the the good attention that he deserves. I think that generally happens. I mean I think as as more and more people study the music, uh more and more the the kind of overlooked players get kind of uh re examined and, and championed again. You know, it's all part of that that part of that same process I mentioned before about how we know more about early jazz now than we did 30 or 40 years ago. You, know, you just have so many so many scholars who are studying the music and so many critics who are voracious listeners that people are always digging up uh, good stuff that may have been forgotten for a while. Kevin, how do you sh-
1: stay up? I mean, literally. I mean, you must stay up all night just to,
0: <laughs> to
1: stay on top of the, the subject, right? I, mean, I am,
0: uh, as we're talking, I'm staring at stacks and stacks of new CDs that have come in over the last uh, month or so. And, um, you you know, you try to listen a lot. You try to read around, you know, on jazz blogs and see what people are talking about. Uh, you read the magazines, you know, things like that. But a lot of it is just... Um, serendipity you know you just dive into uh, recordings and you hear a lot of things that aren't so interesting and every once in a while you hear something that just leaps out at you you know there's um, things like that are are happening all the time Uh, recently I've been listening a lot to the pianist uh, uh, Masubumi Kikuchi Japanese pianist who lives in New York Uh, it's sort of a strange style he's sort of um, tried to eliminate any uh, overt signs of flashy technique from his playing. So it's, he almost gives you the impression that he's approaching the keyboard for the first time. And yet he can play things that are, are really, really, really beautiful. There's uh, a recent ECM record, one of uh, the drummer Paul Motion's uh, last recordings, with uh, also the bass player Thomas Morgan, and they have a really wonderful kind of uh, uh, interplay. Maybe I should mention uh, some of the places that I write now. I don't know, but the the, the NPR gig, for share, I've been doing now since 1987, incredibly. In fact, uh, this weekend I'll be going to Philadelphia. they are having a 25th anniversary celebration of the time that the, the show went national. That is a fantastic gig to have, I have to say. I'm so lucky to have it. Uh, the fact that you can both talk about the music and play excerpts so you can show and tell, that's a, a great privilege that I'm uh, grateful for all the time. And I also write uh, quite a bit for the, the uh, eMusic, the download site that has a large amount of editorial content. You get to write about a, a wide variety of jazz things there. And uh, also do some work for uh, uh, Downbeat. I've started writing for again after a couple of years off. And for an a excellent uh, website, Point of Departure, a kind of uh, a jazz web magazine. I've been doing some reviews for it lately.
1: You get a chance to play Um, music yourself?
0: uh, Working on a new book, also.
1: I want to ask you about
0: that. uh, It's about how um, jazz stories are portrayed in the movies and on television, mostly in the movies, because there hasn't really been that much jazz on TV. And uh, it's sort of looking at uh, how the movies tell and distort and make up the history of jazz and how that sort of history of jazz that one gleans from the movies differs from the actual history. Oh, so part of it is sort of looking at how, how movies uh, distort history in order to force stories into certain kinds of templates. I don't know. It's really One of the things that's really fascinating about that to me is that some of the movies that are supposed to be terrible, if you look at them a lot, maybe they're not as bad as all that. You know, there's actually more things going on in them than maybe immediately apparent. So that's a great thing. So, you
1: know? Yeah, that... that. That really sounds like a fascinating project. There's a number of books out, out there that talk about how history is distorted uh, in film, uh, but I just think uh, your readers would, would love to to hear something like that uh, um, about how jazz is portrayed. So when is that coming out, Ken?
0: I, you know, I, I don't, I'm a, a long way from uh, being done with that. I'm really just um, trying to get the proposal together at this point. So I have a sample chapter written, and I'm doing some revisions on that now. And what part of it is just looking at these movies so many times that you you know what you know what's the date on that calendar on the wall over there you know oh yeah right I got that one well I I like like that kind of close reading sort of thing it it sort of uh, plays into my literary training a little bit also.
1: Well, that just that just really sounds exciting. Well, Kevin, thanks so much. Uh, just such a such a joy to talk to you. I've listened to you on NPR, and and uh, I just learned so much from your book, Why Jazz: A Concise Guide. Uh, published by Oxford University Press, and I think that's going to go out for a, a number of uh, birthday presents and, uh, and and Christmas presents. Uh, it's uh, it's a, just a really a uh, wonderful book. I think uh, I think your readers are going to love it, and I really appreciate your joining me on New Books in Jazz.
0: I really really appreciate your kind words, and I'm glad to talk to you today.
1: You've been listening to New Books in Jazz with Doc Stoll. Today's interview is with jazz critic, author, educator, Kevin Whitehead, about his new book, Why Jazz?, published by Oxford University Press, 2011.